You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, for your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Okay, good morning, everybody. So this passage, what a great passage, the Ten Commandments. I mean, this is a foundational text in our Old Testament, and even more than that, a foundational text in our world. This, you know, the Ten Commandments have been a part of Western civilization for thousands of years, certainly of American civilization. In fact, if you go to any country that's built on the rule of law, chances are somewhere you're going to find references to this very text. In fact, if you go to our nation's capital, you won't just see generic language, you'll see Moses carved onto the Supreme Court building. In fact, one famous Supreme Court justice put it this way, the three most popular religions in the United States, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, which combined account for 97.7% of people who claim to be believers, monotheists, all of them, Islam included, believe that the Ten Commandments were given by God to Moses and are a divine prescription for a virtuous life. I like it a little bit better put by Atticus Finch, who said, but there's one way in this country in which all people are created equal, 
There's one human institution that makes a pauper the equal of a Rockefeller, the stupid man the equal of an Einstein, the ignorant man the equal of any college president. That institution is a court. Whether it's the Supreme Court of the United States or the humblest court in the land or this honorable court in which you serve, our courts have their faults as does any human institution, but this country and our courts are great levelers. And in our courts, all men are created equal. So why are these people talking about Moses and the Ten Commandments in non-religious contexts 3,500 years later? Why, why not talk about Hammurabi, maybe, one of our first law givers? Why is it that this passage has such resonance through the ages that we would consider ourselves a nation of laws, rule of law, that traces its its origins back to Exodus chapter 20. Well, this morning, I want to get past the familiar part of this passage. Moses is a lawgiver, Ten Commandments that maybe you memorized as a kid. Maybe you didn't, but you're pretty familiar with what you can and can't do according to the Ten Commandments. And, and I want to get to something that's maybe not as well known about this passage, and that is the order of the passage. See, the, the way that this passage is structured, in fact, all the way from chapter 19 to chapter 24, is hugely significant. In fact, I might argue that the order of this passage is as important as the commandments themselves for us this morning. Now, order is important in many areas of life, and I was acutely reminded this, of this on Christmas night when I was putting together toys for Christmas morning, or Christmas Eve night for Christmas morning. We got this dollhouse kind of thing for Davy, and I had put 90% of it together, and I'm looking around like there's more pieces here than there should be. And I had forgotten this fundamental piece that you've got to put in like step number three, because I wasn't reading the instructions, because I can do this myself, and I had to take the entire thing apart and put that piece back in together. The order is hugely important. And in the Bible, the way that God orders his engagement with his people is hugely important. If we're reading Exodus, or if we're just thinking about the Ten Commandments, a lot of times we think of them as this kind of binding agreement with God. If you follow my rules, then you'll be on my good side. And if you break my rules, then you'll be on my bad side. Or if you want to be somebody that God approves of, you've got to follow his rules, and then you can win his approval. Or... If you can measure up to the Ten Commandments, then you really could be something spiritually. Maybe even in a deeper way, if I want to be loved by God, if I want to be deserving of love, then I've got to do the things that He commands. But what we see in Exodus is that's actually not the order of this passage. This passage presents something that is so innovative and so mind-blowing and so different than the way that we would make the order of law-giving, that we've got to see in this passage what God does. He, he reverses the order of our conceptions of what constitutes approval and justice and the rule of law. And what we find in this chapter all the way through chapter 24 is that God is going to surprise us with the order in which he approaches us and invites us into a relationship with him. So you can see this from the very beginning of Exodus, because here we are in Exodus chapter 20, 
And in Exodus chapter 1 through 19, God has been the primary actor, and he's been busy saving Israel from Egypt. So God is initiating in this story. God is the one who reaches out to Israel. He hears their cries. He prepares a person. He goes. He levels Egypt to the ground. He brings his people out to the mountain. And for the first few chapters, he doesn't actually require anything of his people. Now, he gives them a warning about the Passover, sure, but, but otherwise, he doesn't set any bar for them to say, if you want me to bring you out of Egypt, then you've got to shape up. No. It's just delivery from Egypt, guidance to Mount Sinai, and only then does God say, I've got some things to tell you. See, what, what God does is he's going to show himself gracious and a deliverer. He's going to set his own standard and live up to his own name all before he ever says, and here's the way that you should live. So I want to go over three surprising orders in this story as we look at the Ten Commandments. The first one is grace before obedience. Grace before obedience. This is shocking. Getting to Sinai was actually a fulfillment of a promise in and of itself. In chapter 3 of Exodus, God gives Moses a mission, and he says, I'm going to prove myself to you because I'm going to send you into Egypt. You're going to get the people of Israel. You're going to come back here, and the sign will be they will worship on this very mountain. Okay, so geographically speaking, what's happened here is Moses has done a there and back again kind of journey. He's gone from the burning bush to Egypt, gotten the people, and come back to the exact same spot. And God says, see, after all of that, just like I promised, God gives them a vision of what's to come in this passage that is full of grace. In chapter 19, starting in verse 3, we get one of the most important passages in Exodus. It says, when they were camping in the wilderness, Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God and, and the Lord calls out to him from the mountain saying, say this to the house of Jacob, tell this to the house of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, I will make you my treasured possession." among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me like a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, God initiates this conversation by saying, I've rescued you, I've brought you to myself, I've adopted you, I've given you grace. And without any expectation of return, I freed you from slavery in Egypt. This is completely radical. God is willing to initiate, he's willing to give grace, and he's willing, honestly, with the nation of Israel, to give a verdict before they've even performed. Right? This, is, this would be as crazy as watching the Olympics, and you get a figure skater who's about to come out and do their routine, and before they do, the judges break in and the announcers say, we're getting a special message here. The judges have already given this routine a 10. Now go ahead and do your routine. Can you imagine the difference that would make if you were the figure skater? 
It'd make a lot of difference for me because I can't figure skate. To know that you have been approved of, that you have been granted the righteous and loving gaze of God, that the verdict is in over your life already, and then he says, okay, go ahead and do your best. There's a little bitty book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Many of you have read this book by Tim Keller. It's a pamphlet. It's a tiny little book, and it talks about the gift of forgetting yourself. That humility actually is one of the greatest gifts that God could give us. The, the orientation of our life, not just thinking less of ourselves, but as he quotes C.S. Lewis, thinking of ourselves less. And in this book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he talks about how could we get that kind of identity? How could we go through life in such a way that we are free from having to live for the approval of others or even for the approval of ourselves or from bearing the standards that we often bear over our own lives? What's the only way to do that? And he says, there's actually one religion, one philosophy, one person who has ever put it in these kinds of terms. Do you realize, he said, that and only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For our story today, we, we might say only at Mount Sinai did people for the first time get the verdict before the performance. You see, the verdict is, is in. And now I perform, I live with God on the basis of the verdict. Because He loves me, because He accepts me, because he's freed me, because he's rescued me, I don't have to do things to build up my resume. I don't have to do things that make me look good. I can do things simply for the joy of doing them. The prologue of the Ten Commandments is so important to under, understanding the Ten Commandments. See, if you, if you live your life trying to live up to the Ten Commandments you'll never be free in the way that he describes. See, God, when he brings his people and he brings Moses up the mountain and they're prepared and the Lord comes by, he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the first thing out of the Lord's mouth. Grace before obedience. I've rescued you. I love you. I brought you to myself. Now I'd like to say something about your life. The foundation of our whole existence, if you're a Christian and you trust in Christ, is that God started moving towards you before you started moving towards him. In fact, the way Paul puts it in Romans is, at just the right time, God sent his son to die for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, God, before the foundation of the world, made a plan to bring you back into his family. In fact, before you even had the opportunity to live for him, God gave his son for you. Grace before obedience. Here's the second thing I want you to see. His character before our character. God's character before our character. Once he's given them grace, he begins to reveal his character to them. Here's a fundamental thing about the Ten Commandments. They say as much about God as they do about us. 
Because the whole point of the Ten Commandments, if you zoom out and think about what's happening in the book of Exodus, you have this group of people that God has promised, I am going to be your God, and you are going to be my people, and I'm going to bring you out of Egypt, and I'm going to put you in a land, and I am going to come and live in the midst of you. See, this goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, that in the garden, the plan for humanity was to live face-to-face with God. That Adam and Eve were in the garden and God himself was walking in the garden in their midst. They had this perfect relationship together until sin entered the world. And what happens with sin is it destroys the relationship, it destroys the intimacy that they had had with God. And so God, at that point, starts to lay out the plan for how he's going to put the relationship back together. How he's going to redeem his people so that he can be with them again. In fact, I say this all the time, the entire storyline of the Bible is contained in the first two pages and the last two pages, that God created us for himself to walk with him, to be with him, to be in relationship with him, sin entered the world, and we were expelled from his presence. Jesus comes and reunites us with God such that at the end of all things, you basically have the undoing of the first two pages. We will dwell with him forever. He will be our God We will be his people. He will be so close and so intimate and so involved that he will be able to write his name on our foreheads. That's the storyline of Scripture. And so here you have this giant step forward of they have been estranged from God. They've been slaves in Egypt. They've been a far way away from where they started out in the Garden of Eden. And now God has come and he's going to dwell in their midst again. But the Ten Commandments and all of the law, for that matter, are God's way of saying This is what it looks like to live with God in the middle of your life. In fact, you can get down into the very boring parts of the Bible. We're talking the end of Exodus, Leviticus, the book of Numbers, and you can get down into the details of even how they arrange their camp in Israel. That there would be four tents on the north side and four tents on the west side and four on the east and four on the south, and in the middle would be the tabernacle such that even spatially they would be reminded every day that God is in the center of their life. Their whole community is oriented with God in the middle. And so the Ten Commandments, when God gives these commandments, this is the summary, this is the uh, executive summary of the law, boiled down into Ten Commands to say, what does it look like to have a holy God in your midst? And these commandments, they, they essentially reveal what God's society is like. And let's just look at these commandments for a minute. The first commandment, you shall not have any other gods before me, is the fundamental commandment. In fact, if you were going to divide these commandments up, there's a million ways that people have proposed to do this. But I think the most compelling way is that the first commandment is the overarching commandment for everything. It, it encompasses everything. No other gods before me. You were made to worship God. Anything you substitute before God is idolatry. It's a a lack of proper worship. It's a lack of the right orientation of your life. The moment that your heart, which longs to worship something, starts to worship something else, you're bound to break all the commandments. So Jesus shows us this when he has this conversation with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what good thing must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you know, have you kept the commandments? And he lists a few of them, you know, honor your father and mother, don't murder, you know. And he says, I've kept all of those. 
And Jesus, with probably a little bit of a sly grin, says, well, why don't you sell everything you have and follow me? And in the moment, the rich young ruler, he's torn. It says, because he has great riches. And Jesus, looking at him, says he loves him. But the rich young ruler ends up walking away. And in that exchange, it's, it's as if Jesus went for some of these other commandments down the list, and when he says, I've got those, check, 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 he says, let's go back and start with the first commandment. Do you have any other gods besides me? Well, this guy had it all together. He would have been involved in the worship in the temple. He was a church-going guy. He had never had anything to soil his reputation. He was looked at for all people as a religious person who had it all together. But as Jesus points out, if you go to the very first commandment, it's a matter of the heart. He actually had something else that was occupying the place that only God can occupy. And Jesus, in this radical way of defining God's law for our lives. You remember, he doesn't just say, it's, it's okay if you haven't just murdered anybody externally. He says, it's all a matter of the heart. You know, he, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said, don't murder, don't get angry. But he says, I say to you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. How does that make sense? It's because what Jesus is essentially saying is, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're breaking the first commandment. If you lust after someone in your heart, even if it never comes out into the open, you're breaking the first commandment. You're worshiping somebody else, something else. And you shall have no other worship besides the worship of God. Other people divide these commandments into our life with God. The first few commandments are pertaining to God. You shouldn't have any other gods. You shouldn't make any graven images or idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy before the Lord. Even the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, is directed at God, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. It's a reflection of your relationship with God that you would honor your father and your mother. And then the last five commandments are all about how we behave with each other. And, and these two are amazing in the scope of history to see what God's community is like next to what even the greatest of our ancient communities are like. So you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or long for or desire or in some ways the tenth commandment and the first commandment are the same. Find your satisfaction in anything other than God himself. You know, just on the ground, this, this made the Israelites really different than the people surrounding them. So, you know, just to pick one, one of the radical things in the Ten Commandments is it's the first time in history, and for a very long time, it's the only community in history where adultery is wrong for both men and women. This is something that would have made the Hebrew people look very different than the surrounding areas, and sure, they didn't always live up to that, but God's revelation of His character is one of faithfulness and deference and love for one another, following the plan of creation that God had made thousands of years before and had continued to this moment and would continue to eternity future. This is what it looks like to live before God. You know, a lot of in church history, there's been a lot of writing on the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are still uh, an important document for us, 
But people have discussed what use the Ten Commandments might have for us. And Martin Luther famously came up with three uses of the law, three ways that we can apply the Ten Commandments to our life. Because you're not saved by following the Ten Commandments. You're not justified before God by following the Ten Commandments. In fact, Jesus boils down the entire law to two commandments. So what's the role of the Ten Commandments for us? He says, first, the commands, the law, are a mirror for us. They reveal God's perfect standard and show us the way that we truly look. Like if you've ever felt really good about yourself and you're like, I'm just killing it for God, it's time to spend some time in the law because immediately you will feel like you are lacking. I mean, not just the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments overall, you know, there's, you can stay between those lines pretty easily, but man, when you get into the law and you realize that God cares about every square inch of your life, it's a recipe for looking at that and saying, I can't measure up. Have you ever been out trying something on in a store and you love it and you bring it home and you're like, this just isn't, this isn't what I thought it was. This isn't doing it for me. Something, something's changed. Well, in a lot of retail stores, they tilt their mirrors. At least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> to make you look taller and thinner. In fact, if you just bring the bottom of the mirror a little closer to you than the top, you look amazing in their clothes. You've, you've lost weight since you left the house. And when you try things on and you look in that mirror because it's distorted, you have a distorted picture of who you are and what you look like. And then when you snap back to reality, your own mirror at home, you realize, oh, it's just like I thought it was. I look just the same as I did yesterday. These stores have discovered something, that we are so susceptible to define ourselves by the way that somebody else might tell us that we look. That the mirror that we're gazing into has a deep and profound effect on our psychology, on our emotions, on our self-worth. And the Bible, above all things, the law is a mirror to show us who we truly are. Loved by God, sinners before God, redeemed by God. This is, in fact, the only accurate mirror that we can really ever find. You know, Martin Luther, in his catechisms, he walks through the Ten Commandments, and he used these as a mirror for his own heart every day. In fact, he devised, in total Martin Luther fashion, four steps to pray through all of the commandments every day. Now, this is why he did spend like three hours a day in prayer, is because if you're going to do this, you've got 40 prayer items on your list. But I love his prayer uh, portion for the first commandment. In his thanksgiving section, he says, I give thanks for God's infinite compassion by which he has come to me in such a fatherly way and unasked, unbidden, unmerited has offered to be my God, to care for me, to be my comfort, my guardian, my help, and my strength in my time of need. We poor mortals have sought so many gods, and would have to seek them still if God did not enable us to hear him openly tell us in our own language that he wants to be our God. How could we ever in all eternity thank him enough for his law? His law is a mirror for us. It shows us what's true. It's also a restraint. This is why the Ten Commandments have had such an outsized role 
in Western history is because one of the uses of the law is to restrain evil, to model a society after this law. It doesn't make you a Christian, but it will restrain certain sins from running rampant in your culture. So this is like a, a restraint or a curb. It's, it's a way of ordering a society in which sin is not given full vent in the way that we treat each other. And lastly, maybe most importantly, this third use of the law is that it is a guide for us. It gives us a perfect image of God's own character. What is God like? Look at the things that he tells us in his law. You know, this is why you can say things like the psalmist do, I love your perfect law. Otherwise, how could you say that? Well, if the law is an image of God's own character and his own disposition towards you, we love the law. We love to get a glimpse of what God is like, that he is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. We love to see that God is gracious before he calls us to obedience. The last thing I want you to see in this passage is that the order of Sinai before Mount Moriah really matters. So you've probably asked the question before, why do the whole law thing, right? Why not just send Jesus immediately? After Adam and Eve leave the garden, sin has entered the world, why not just send Jesus then and save us all this trouble of human history and the law and the sacrifices and all of that? And, and the simple answer in the Bible is, God laid out this order so that we could fully understand what Jesus was doing. If Jesus had come right then, you would have no context for what he was doing. See, Paul makes this really clear in Galatians chapter 3. The law is our guide. It is our picture of Christ before he came. And Israel at Mount Sinai is a picture of us before Christ, where they come to the mountain and God says, I'm going to give you three days to prepare for my coming. And on the morning of the third day, I am going to come to you. And I, I need you to prepare. I need everybody to be clean. I need everybody to stay away from the mountain because if you touch it, you will die. You are not ready to encounter a holy God as you are. And so the people prepare themselves, and the cloud comes down, and there's an earthquake, and there's flames of fire, and there's this ear-tearing trumpet that's blowing louder and louder and louder. And the people even say, let Moses speak to us. We can't bear to have God speak to us, or we will die. Mount Sinai stands as a reminder to us that we actually have no business being before a holy God. Sinful people like us, we find ourselves at the foot of Mount Sinai trembling with fear because we've entered this covenant with a God who is loving and gracious, and at the same time, we can't even approach safely without worry for our very lives. And so Israel begins to sacrifice, and they begin to have the blood of an animal, a goat, or a sheep stand in for their own blood with this holy God. And Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that anybody who does not abide by God's law, anybody who sins, they are given a curse. They are counted as accursed by God. The, the verdict of Sinai will always be guilty. No matter how great your life is, 
No matter how much God has come to you in his graciousness and initiated a relationship with you, we can never reciprocate well enough to be righteous before God. The verdict of Mount Sinai, the law that hangs over us, as Paul says, it is a guardian to bring us to Christ, will always have a guilty verdict. But the Bible presents another mountain. And on this mountain, there's earthquake, and there's lightning, and there's darkness, and there's screaming and agony. And Paul says there was one who became a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And and on that mountain, Jesus yells out at the top of his lungs, it is finished. See, See, Jesus says in Matthew, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. I didn't come to make the law unimportant. I I came to actually show you how important it is. I didn't didn't come to give everybody a get-out-of-jail-free card like the law didn't matter. That was all just kind of a ruse, you know, nothing, nothing to see here. But I came to live up to the very standard of the law. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of the Ten Commandments. And he doesn't just abide by the external commandments. His heart is perfectly aligned with God's. He shares his character. He cares about the things that God cares about. He loves the way that God loves. And he lived his life on behalf of everybody who doesn't measure up so that on the new mountain, on Calvary, on Mount Moriah, the verdict would come down on Jesus, guilty, so that the verdict for you could come down as set free paid in full. It is finished. The curse of the law fell upon Jesus so that it doesn't fall upon us. Jesus gives us the pattern to look at for what the law looks like with flesh and bones. Jesus' life is a perfect fulfillment of the law. And because he did that, we now can be reunited with God through him. So if you try to live by the Ten Commandments now, one of the things that you'll find is you're constantly finding yourself falling short. For all that Jesus did, for all that he's done for us, for all the spirit working in us, we still fall short. And the church certainly has fallen short in living up to God's standards. But I'll conclude with this. There's a book called Bullies and Saints by John Dixon, just a great title talking about the difficulty of the church even to live up to our own ideals, even something as simple as the Ten Commandments. And he said, think of a a beautiful melody, right? Think of a, a, a wonderful symphony or a song and one where you know how the tune goes, but but you go to a show and the person playing it is not playing it right. In fact, you're you're kind of concerned this person doesn't really know how to play. The instrument they're playing. And, and you can just barely make out what the original tune must be for what they're doing. You might think to yourself, this isn't a very good song. But if you know the tune, more likely you'll think, this just isn't a very good player. Because when you hear that song played by the master, you'll, you'll realize what a beautiful tune it is. And in fact, the only reason you know it is played poorly 
is because you know what the perfect tune sounds like. What the Ten Commandments do for us is they remind us that there is a beautiful, wonderful tune for our lives. And we, as people that can't play it as perfectly as we ought to, shouldn't just look at our failures. We should look at the one who did play it perfectly. Look to the life of Jesus. Hear it played by a master. Measure it by his performance of all that God had commanded us to do. And that's the thing with Christianity is so different than other religions is that we judge Christianity, we judge the law, we judge our own efforts and falling short by the one who played the symphony perfectly. And we are counted with his performance. That's what makes the verdict so sweet redeemed by the blood of Jesus, Amen. counted worthy from his performance, set free from the curse of the law by the promise of grace through the Son of God who died for us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that even when we can just barely hear the faint melody, we can look to your law and see your perfect and wonderful character. That as we try to align our lives with your commandments, Lord, we know that it's not our performance that matters most. It's your son, Jesus's, and that he has performed on our behalf. Father, we come to the end of ourselves every time we turn to your law, and it reminds us all over again how amazing your grace is for us. And so, Father, this morning as we look at your Ten Commandments, would you remind us that you have rescued us, you have loved us, you have given us yourself, and you've shown us the way to live. So, Father, give us the power to live lives that reflect your love for us and your commands to love other people. Lord, as Kerwin said this morning, would you make us known by our love? Would you make us known by the way we treat each other, the way that we live with you in the center of our lives? Father, we need your strength to do it. And we are so grateful for your Son and your Spirit. We're so grateful for your law, which teaches us what you are like, that we could walk with you each day. It's in your Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we're celebrating communion together, and the way we do communion is we'll stand, and as our servers come, they'll hold the bread.